Hartford Bible Chapel this morning. I, too, am, in a visit, am a visitor with my wife, Janet, and my daughter, Gracie. And, um, yes, sir. Okay. So let me maybe just reposition things here. All right. And so I want to welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus and uh, also take an opportunity to express my deepest gratitude for your invitation to come and be at your conference, even though it's been as long as four years, John. And, um, and seriously, it's, it's been a real privilege. I said, to, uh, I said to Janet, I said, you know, you've been traveling more with me. I really thank you for that. She goes, oh, listen, I never say no to Branford. <laughs> there you go. Now that's an endorsement. Mrs. Wonderful gave you the endorsement. But more importantly, it's been, it's been lovely to be thinking about the Savior, to be in His Scriptures, to be able to share that with you, and just hearing some of your thoughts and responses, as well as uh, your own meditations about the Word of God. has been so uh, thrilling and encouraging to, to both of us. And so we want to express to you our deepest gratitude. It is a real honor to be here. I consider you uh, East Coast family. So when I go travel somewhere, I'm going to come here. Uh, John, okay. And you're welcome to come to the Midwest, uh, and uh, uh, I would uh, love to see you. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open the Scriptures, but Lord God, without the, the Spirit of God and His, and His abilities to communicate and illuminate, none of this would actually happen and happen well. So we ask you this morning to, to give us a special measure of your Spirit as we would seek to expound his word in Jesus' name. Amen. Our theme this weekend has been uh, glory and worship and the worship of our God in heaven. And um, the reason why uh, that came to mind was because um, some of the things that we have uh, maybe slipped, slipped on, that we have failed to continue to appreciate, is the greatness of our God. I remember this, uh, uh, I don't think I've told you this story, but uh, I remember this time when my son didn't think his dad was very special. Did I tell you this story already? No. And uh, his coach was a basketball coach, just a little bit older, about mid-20s or so. And uh, he invited his coach to come to our house. My son invited his coach to come to our house for a since a little um, Bible study, and it was a week long, weekend long thing. It was about twelve or fifteen hours, whatever it was. And so it was kind of intensive. And so afterwards, his coach wanted to come back a few times over the season, and eventually we got to know him fairly well. And one day he said to my son, he said, "You know, your dad. You know, your dad. He's really got his head on straight about the things of God." My son goes, "My dad? Seriously, my dad?" Now. Every one of us have done that to our fathers, and every one of us have probably received that in some measure. But sometimes we do that to the Lord. And we go, really? The Lord? You mean my Lord? Seriously? And so we need to have a reset, don't we? And so we began Friday night by just talking about His glory. And His glory has an expressive element to it, but you know, it's, it's quite personal with God. It draws hearts together, welds them together. And then yesterday, our three sessions, we talked about our response to God. Because if we actually understand Him correctly, if we actually see Him for who He is, if we know Him to that level, then we should respond. 
And our response, like my son's change in his attitude towards his father, should be one of worship. Now, when we started the study on worship, we defined the term, and then we we took some time to go uh, to multiple scriptures, and the one that was mentioned uh, was John 4, and that the Father is seeking the true worshiper who worships Him in spirit and truth. And we talked about four phrases, true worshiper, worshiping in spirit, worshiping in truth, and that He seeks you. He's tearing apart the universe to find this individual. And then in the second hour, we talked about Abraham. And Abraham is the one that uh, meets the, the angel of the Lord, and, and he falls down, prostrates himself. That's worship. And, uh, and, he, and, and God allows himself to be refreshed by the worship of this ancient man, such that it turned into authentic communion, where now they were talking face to face like friends. And then we saw the contrast with Lot, where a similar offer was made of hospitality, but those representing God, the angels of God, said, no, thank you. That was a pretty stark moment of of contrast, wasn't it? Well, today, in this little series, I'd like to talk about Genesis chapter 22. Because in Genesis chapter 22, we have one of the most profound descriptions, one of the most artistic descriptions, expressions of what encompasses worship in all of the Old Testament. Now you realize that this is only part of the series. The series has to, if we were to continue, would go to Isaiah, would go back to Revelation, and pretty much we'd be here till next year. So, so I've decided just to end with this one, and hopefully we can study again together sometime. Genesis chapter 22 is a very interesting chapter. It sort of comes out of nowhere. You're reading along the book of Genesis. You know, you have Abraham, and he's having different interactions with God. But this particular chapter seems to be uniquely set apart. For God now asks of Abraham something that he hasn't even mentioned before. He asks of Abraham to do something which to most of us would seem um, unheard of. Should not, be, uh, should not be exercised. We should never even think of that today. Of course, it would be punishable by a, a, a breakage of the law. People would call it child abuse. So how does this differ? What is really being exercised here? What is being expressed in this chapter? Is there something else that goes along with this sort of unusual, very um, somewhat abrasive, strikes you as the wrong way kind of request of God? Well, that's what we want to look at today. So if, you're in, if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 22. Now, when I go through this chapter, we'll most, mostly go through it by two verse increments, two verses at a time. Each, ver, each section, each passage or paragraph will have its own title, and it's all going to have the center focus of worship. So let's do, this, do it this way. The first paragraph is called readiness, readiness. Begins, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, that's Abraham, here am I. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, like I said, it's sort of a, a catch-you-off-guard kind of statement to open an interaction between God and Abraham with that kind of request. Immediately, we would think, I would think, this is not right. Something's wrong. Human sacrifice? Ever since God had been, or Abraham been, had been acquainted with God, human sacrifice was not of anything that God had mentioned. He always asked for a substitute. And apparently it was well known to Abraham because he had a practice of making, of making altars and having sacrifices. So to ask for a human sacrifice would have been most unusual and contrary to the entire pagan land in which he was dwelling. For they were known for human sacrifices. But this God, monotheistic God, triune God, not a pluralistic God or polytheistic God, this God is different. So it's very, very stark, surprising, if not mouth-dropping. But did you notice that although there was this sort of surprise there was a readiness that was preset in Abraham. Notice he says, he called them by name. He says, Abraham, and Abraham responded, here I am. There was not a moment of hesitation for Abraham. There was not a moment of, uh, of um, procrastination for Abraham. He was immediately available. Now that phrase, here I am, shows up two more times in the chapter. And each time they display the same resolve, the same readiness. Here I am. I'm ready to go. Whatever you say, I will do. Even this one. So why, I ask you, why would God test him? It says that in the text. He says, God tested Abraham in verse 1. What is this testing about? Why is it important? What does it have to do with anything? Well, perhaps we should stop for a moment and just think about the, uh, the economy of God, how God works. You see, it is very true that God is sovereign. And what we mean by that is that he is over all things that happens. He knows them. He knew them before they happened. He has a plan and he incorporates all that happens within his plan. Now, it's important to understand that sovereignty does not mean dictation, does not mean being a dictator. I tell you everything that you must do, you must say, and if you don't do that, heads will roll. That's not God. That's not how he's depicted. What God has done is he has incorporated within his rule the opportunity for there to be free will. That's what he's done. I didn't make it up. That's what he did. Now, it's not too far off the, off the grid because we do that as parents. We have children, and we, we, within our sovereignty of the home, give them options. Do you want to go to bed at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock? What do you want to do? Either way, you're going to bed, but I'll let you choose. Now, I know what the children say. Dad, that's not really a choice, eating green beans or spinach. No, thank you. All right? But it's a choice. And within our realm of rule in the family, we have choices. And then we incorporate such choices into the overall our, our overriding plan. Now, in a similar way, although certainly much more perfect than my little puny illustration, 
that God does the same thing. Now, he did that with the angels. Did you know that? The angels had an opportunity to choose. One of them chose poorly. His name was Lucifer, and we discussed him yesterday and what he did in his heart towards God to try this coup attempt before the throne and take the glory of God from heaven. He failed, of course. There wasn't a fight. It was actually actually lost before it was even started. But in the process, it appears that he had a whole band of angelic beings that sided with him and were cast out of heaven with him. There was a moment of choice. There was a moment of testing. You see, if you only have a robotic control where he dictates everything, there's no need for testing. Why? Because there's only duty to perform. But if you give people the opportunity to say no, then what happens is you put yourself at risk and it therefore demands a moment of testing. And that's the truth for that's true for the human race too. Because when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, there was a moment of testing. Do not eat of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And there had to be a, a, an occasion, <laughs> excuse me, for choice. He had an opportunity to choose. Now remember, if you're the one that's giving the opportunity, if you're the parent that's giving your, your opportunity to the son, to your child, to make a choice either for or against what you believe in, you put yourself at risk. You put yourself in harm's way. You put yourself in the, st- in the, in the place where you could be rejected. And that's exactly what God did. He put himself in the place where he could be rejected. That's how big, large, and immense our God is. He's not so insecure, if you will, to have to have a dictatorial system. He is of a nature that can can handle it if there is rejection, if you will. And so he says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son whom you love. In my mind, that elevates God, that he would ask whether I would obey him or not. Why? Put, it puts him at risk, and yet he preserves the sense of autonomy and individuality within the human frame. I would never make a plan like that. I'd rather control everything. That's why they call me micromanager. My wife is going, oh, you have no idea. (laughs) But this is is the way God has worked. And so he turned to Abraham. Now, the test was not easy. He said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Boy, I tell you, that, that description of the scenario sounds uncanny, uncannily. I'm not sure if that's a word. Sounds very similar to the description between God the Father and God the Son, doesn't it? He had an only son. Only begotten mean first place, like Isaac was first place as the inheritance. Um, uh, he loved his son like Abraham loved his son. There was a special promise. There was a special element in, uh, in Isaac, so that it was in Jesus Christ. And thus, there is a, 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 a strange sort of parallel that is being drawn between Abraham and Isaac on the human stage, and yet it is reflective of the very same parameters in the heavenly stage. And you suddenly get the idea that God is using lives to paint a mural. 
And the mural he's painting is he's uncovering his heart. He's uncovering his stamina. He's uncovering the agony that a human father would have in hearing that that test so he would subject himself to. We become the little children who come to the window edge, the windowsill of heaven, and we on our tippy toes lean up to look over, and suddenly we see that it, what it meant for God the Father to send God the Son to the earth. Because we could only imagine. We could only imagine what it, what it would have been for an earthly father to hear that request, that test for his only son of whom he loved, his special son. What I mean to do by this statement is to elevate you, elevate your thinking about your father in heaven. Tremendous, tremendous sacrifice. And the only way we get a measure of that is if we have a picture of that, of something similar upon this earth. Well, there it is, Genesis 22. So the readiness factor is huge. Here am I. The test is great. Take now your son. And the sacrifice is immense. Whom you love. Burnt offering. I'll tell you when. I'll tell you where. Now the second paragraph in terms of this passage and now focused on worship, I call preparation. Preparation. Now, the preparation was interesting. There was no delay in the text. There was no, again, procrastination. There seems to be immediacy, immediacy, responsiveness, right awayness. Look at what it says. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Listen, if I had to do something like take my son and burnt offering on some mountain, I'm going to drag my feet. I'm going to make it six months before we get there. But no, no, no. Abraham took this so seriously he made it the first priority of what appears to be the next day. And this is all in the process of worship, of responding to God. Look, it says, He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son, he split the wood, split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. Now notice verse 3. Yesterday, we were talking about the number of people in Abraham's operation. Yesterday, we we said, well, if he had 318 choice individuals that we found that he had in Genesis 14, choice servants born in his home, and each of them were from one family, which is an assumption true, and two parents, that's at least 1,000 people. They're probably the size of a larger family, if we say 10 per family that's 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 you're talking about 5000 people easy right and my point was abraham had people abraham did not need to split the wood how old was this guy anyway about 120 i don't know what you think when you're 120 but swinging that axe is going to throw you on the ground but abraham had people he did not need to saddle the donkey Abraham had people. He didn't need to rise up early. He could have the servants do it. But what Abraham was doing was he was taking seriously the request of God so that he would personally handle every aspect of the request. Now, I have a large family like some of you, and I uh, I sometimes will say when when we're talking 
visiting, I'll say, well, you should come and visit us. I have a staff. The kids go, he's, talk, he's talking about us, right? Yes, I am. And our staff, they, they'll make sure your bed is ready and mints on the pillows and, and, little, and little treats in the little refrigerator that we put in your room. So you please feel free to come. Now, what we realized is as the kids have grown and they've gotten older and moved out of the house, our staff has shrunk. And we're not sure what we're going to do. We're going to have to downsize. <laughs> but you see, he had a staff. And the reason why you have a staff is that so you delegate to them responsibility. But no, when it's that important, you do it yourself. And let me tell you something. When God was dealing with our sin at the cross of Calvary, he did it himself. He wouldn't delegate it. He wouldn't give it to an angel. He wouldn't give it to some other living creature. God would deal with your sin personally. And in one sense, he would actually rise early on the horizon of time. He would ready the animals that would carry his son one day down the hill into Jerusalem. He would sustain tree life so that there would be actually a block of wood to suspend the body of his son so that all the wrath of God would be put upon him. Yes, our God, in a sense, awakened the son to be incarnate in human flesh and bone. And the two of them went together. Do you see the parallel? Do you see the uncanny ability of the Spirit of God to use these men's, these men's lives and actions as little well, uh, uh, colors of paint on the palette of the master artist of glory who now paints this mural so you and I who look over the little windowsill of heaven can see the immensity of our God. Now notice verse 4 in this second paragraph. It says that, the, that they rode three days and they saw the mountain. Well, you might be unfamiliar with Israel, so I'm going to illustrate for you. See my tie? It's not there. Okay. In my massive sternum, we're going to call that Israel. It's about this big and about this wide. Down towards my navel, don't look too close. That would be Beersheba. That's where Abraham lived. Now, in order for him to get to Jerusalem, which is halfway up the country, you would have to go through some pretty rugged terrain. Several decades ago, this gentleman decided to test and see how long it would take to go from Beersheba to Jerusalem, where Mount Moriah was. The experiment was interesting. He had to ride a camel at a trot 12 hours a day, three days in a row to go from Beersheba to Jerusalem. Do you ever ride a horse 12 hours a day at a trot? You don't do so well when you get off the animal. Your legs are permanently bent. How about a camel? Well, they're not just permanently bent. They're permanently, permanently, permanently bent. What am I saying to you? God to, or Abraham took this so seriously that he would gallop, he would trot, he would, he would canter to the place of sacrifice. Now, although it seems as if there was a lot of time that elapsed between the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 1 and the death of Christ in Matthew chapter 27, 
I want you to know that according to the timeline of God, he was galloping to that event. He wasn't going to put it off. He wasn't going to hold it away. It was something that he took so seriously, he would rush as quickly as possible to the Calvary. I can't, I can't understand that. The God of the universe would rush to save my life when all I did was rebel against him. My goodness, we are the little children coming to the windowsill of heaven, and now we're beginning to peer in and get a bigger picture of the colors that he's using for his mural. Now, let's look at the third paragraph. The third paragraph is one I call faith. See, when you're worshiping God, it (coughs) requires readiness, yes. It requires preparation, yes. But it requires faith. And this is what it it says. We'll read in verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. There's the word, third time used in the Old Testament, and will come back to you. Now, this is an interesting little little paragraph, this little verse. You notice he uses the word lad. That's a specific translation by the editors. And the reason why is because it's not the word for child. It's not the word for infant. It's a word that means that there is some stature and growth to this, to this lad, to this boy. He had the perhaps the physique of a man staying at the Clifford's. Two sons are strong men. I'm looking up to them every time I say something to them. They're lads. You know, I would never want to admit this, but I'm pretty sure if I challenge them in something as, as simple as basketball, they'd probably clean my clock, you know. Well, I'm pretty sure that, that Isaac could have really taken out the 120-year-old guy. He had 100 years on him, don't you think? I'm pretty sure. So what you'll notice in this is Isaac has a voluntary um, demeanor of submission. He takes his strength and he yields it. He bows it before his father, just like the Lord Jesus. Now also notice this, that when we talk about the faith part, Abraham says to the two servants that were with him, he says, now, We've come all this four, it's four member group. They've come all this way. We've been cantering along these great little camels. But hey, off in the distance, we can see Moriah. Now, what that means is that he was probably on the lower mountain ridge across the southern area of the Hinnon Valley. Today, it's actually called, uh, what is it called? Uh, um, that's where Judas was buried, and they have a certain name for that. Mount Council, I think. And so you, it's down the Valley of Hinnon. You could walk it. Up takes about 15 minutes to get up to the top of Mount, or, uh, Mount Moriah there where the Temple Mount is. And so they, they see it. They say, now listen, there, you guys stay here. The lad and I will go. Boy, that's just like the cross. Who are the real two players at the cross? It was God the Father who was serving as judge, and it was God the Son serving as the substitute. And it's sort of in a very picturesque way we find the two going to the top of Moriah both in this day in Genesis 22 around 2000 BC or so and then 2000 years later you find the same incident repeating itself with with majesty and glory we're the little children and we get to peer into the windowsill of heaven and watch the heart of God unfold his masterpiece right now the faith part is very interesting he says 
to the men, now you stay here, the lad and I will go and we'll come back. Now, how can that be? Because the command was to use a, uh, Isaac as a final endpoint of a sacrifice. You don't come back from ashes. Oh my goodness, this would be ripping my heart out. Those three days we'd be riding the camel. That would be awful, wouldn't it? To have that kind of faith, what is being said? What, 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 could poss- what possibly could have come through the mind of Abraham? Well, fortunately, we have the book of Hebrews, which tells us. And Abraham had the faith to believe that if God had promised me that my son Isaac would be, through his posterity, uh, all the families of the earth would be blessed and my children would be as as many as the stars and this land would be mine, both physical uh, promises to Abraham and spiritual promises to the world. If God had promised me that, God must keep his word. And what Hebrews tells you is that Abraham therefore concluded that God must have something else up his sleeve. I don't know what that is, but I imagine on those three days that they walked or rode to Mount Moriah, Abraham said, God's just going to have to raise him from the dead. That's just it. It's got to be. And in fact, Hebrews even says that's what, that was Abraham's thought. How much teaching on resurrection did we have actually by this time in biblical history? 1 Corinthians 15 wasn't exactly written yet. I know. There was minimal understanding of the resurrection concepts that we know today. Job, a contemporary, probably lived over towards uh, down in in the um, uh, east side of the Jordan. He may have had a clue about that because when he wrote the book of Job, thought to be a contemporary of Abraham, there seems to be some reflection on, uh, on resurrection. But other than that, that's it. So how do you come up with that kind of thought? Where does that come from? What comes from faith? The faith that says God made a promise. And although this test, this promise seems wrong, although it seems crazy, I am not going to let the craziness of the moment dictate my faith. I'm going to let the character of God dictate my faith. And instead of believing the worst about God, I will believe the best about God. And that means I believe God will raise my son from the dead. And you and I, we face that too. See, we have these trials that come along our lives and they're big ones, aren't they? I'll never forget when Janet's mom passed. I underestimated how hard that was for her. I I wish I had never done that. One day she said, you know, when the Lord took my mom, she was my best friend. I've said, I thought I was your best. I didn't say that. She said she was my best friend. And I couldn't understand it. And I had questions about God. And what I saw that woman do, my wife, she saw, she said, you know, I could believe the worst about God right now, but I choose to believe what is right, what is good, because that's who he says he is. And he keeps his word, and that faith entered into the picture. And although she could have concluded awful things about God, she concluded the best about God. And faith allowed her to be a worshiper of the Savior. That's how it works, isn't it? 
So if you have a test in your life right now, if you are being pummeled with the uncertainty of life, pummeled with things that don't make sense, beaten down with, with pressures that are overwhelming your soul, I don't care what they are. It could be as a broken car or a, or a fractured limb or a failed test. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that this is a moment where God and his character is on trial too. And the trial should never, uh, should never go to this level, but he subjects himself to your estimate of who he is and what he is and that you can trust him. You can trust him in this moment and therefore let that good, solid, pristine, honoring, integritous character of God rule the moment. He's just going to fix it. I would love to tell you I'm a great man of faith. But you know when he said the faith of a mustard seed? I'm just a teeny weeny weeny bit of that mustard seed. But my father, my father has been very faithful. You know how we used to read those books that tells about the faithfulness of God in answering prayer? You ever read those? George Mueller. We would never pretend to be George Mueller, trust me. But we're starting to have our own little paragraphs now in our own chapters because God has shown himself faithful so many times. I shouldn't go on because I was going to tell you a story, but I'll wait. No, 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 it's a long one. (laughs) But it's a good one at the break. Let's look at the next paragraph. I call it perseverance. So remember, we had readiness. We had preparation. We had faith. Now in this course of journey of worship, we have to have perseverance. Now look at this. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? Did not the Savior carry the cross on his own back? And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. Those are implements of judgment. And the two of them went together. Notice, just the two. No camels, no servants, just the father and the son. Boy, I tell you, that sounds like the cross to me. Look at this. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and notice Abraham's response. Here am I, my son. Here am I. I'm not not stopping. Boy, I tell you, you, if I was Abraham and my son said, Daddy, I said, Yeah, you want to go home? Yep. First train leaves in about two minutes. You know, that's what I would have done. But then this question of all questions is leveled at Abraham. Now, I don't, not, maybe he, he was able to get to this point and trust God. Now there's a question from the very person who's, ask, who's going to be the sacrifice. Uh, look, the fire and the wood. Uh, but where's the, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? You know what he's meaning? We've been doing this so long and so often. I know this by the back of my hand. And the back of my hand says we're supposed to have an animal right about now. And I've noticed something, Dad. We have no animal. Where's the animal? Let me see if I can put this in perspective to you. When I was working more regularly, I would have children fall and cut their chin. They'd come into the emergency department. I was the doctor on duty. The dad would come in. He would be like, he would be like Mr. Universe, you know. He'd have arms as big as my thighs and has a neck that I don't think they actually had tape measures big enough. 
big, strong pecs and legs, and he's big old guy, sits down, takes up two chairs. I mean, you know, the little little tiny kid sits on the lap, and, and the kid says, Dad, Daddy, is it, is it going to hurt? And the, and, the, and the father, the big, strong guy, let me show you what he does. <laughs> Just like that. Can you imagine this moment? Daddy, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? That would have been a puddle. I don't, you know, this is a big mistake, sweetheart. We just need to go home. This is, we're done, okay? You're right. You're right. Well, I forgot. Let's go back. Right? Which one of us would not have done that? But you see, worship takes perseverance, and I think this is the biggest part of the test where the son himself asks the father, where is the lamb? And you know what Abraham said? You can read it. God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Now that answer is probably the answer that could have been given between the father and the son. So I wondered in my mind, if this were a moment in history and we could just stop the movie, if that question would not reverberate all through the celestial bodies, echoing off star to star, eventually entering into the gates of heaven, bouncing down the sound and the question, bouncing down the corridors of gold and reaching the throne room of God. And there the eternal God, the eternal Son of God sitting there. And that question could be heard in perfect clarity. Would it not have hushed the angelic hosts? For the answer in the courtroom of heaven would have been, I'm providing you as the lamb for the burnt offering. And if you think there was agony in the heart of Abraham when that boy asked that question, would there not, could there not, I can't say for sure, but could there not be equally like agony within the Godhead? Could we not at least understand that and see for a moment that this is costly? And so we are the children that look over the windowsill of heaven and we see the mural of God's heart unfolding. Absolutely astounding. It takes perseverance to, ha- to give that question or to ask, answer that question. It, could, it, it takes a sense of commitment. It takes a sense of faith. Oh, listen. Saints, when you want to worship God, it's a serious thing. It is readiness. It is preparation. It is faith. It is perseverance. It is costly. And it ought to be because the very cost that, was, that, was, uh, that he's asking you to give is the cost he's already paid. So make no mistake. It's worth everything for our Savior knows exactly. Our God knows exactly the cost of a sacrifice. Finally, we reach verses 9 and 10. Then he came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar, and there placed the wood in order. Notice, it's Abraham doing all the work. (coughs) And he bound his son. Doesn't that sound eerily familiar to the episode at the cross where he was pierced with nails in in his hands and his feet? And put Isaac on his son, laid him on the altar, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Can you imagine that? The boy laying there motionless, looking, eyes open, looking at his father. His father now with the knife raised high. We're thinking this is awful craziness of this deranged man. What's wrong with you? And yet he is totally intact, 
totally had his faculties, and that knife comes up so high, ready to be plunged in. And I noticed that Abraham did not put the knife down at all. You see, it will cost personal sacrifice to worship God. There's a story that goes like this. It's by Rex Trogdon. You might know Rex. He's from North Carolina. He was a missionary in Africa. And he was teaching the Africans about the breaking of bread where we have the, the emblem of the, of the cup and the bread and they're arrayed there. And, and, and afterwards, we, 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 after we've remembered and worshiped the Lord, our hearts are full. We want to give to the Lord, you know, and so there's a sense of offering. And so the Africans, you know, they weren't very rich individuals in the Congo, so they would bring eggs and they'd put eggs right there by the table or chickens and they'd tie a chicken up or something or a goat or whatever. And, and one day this guy had given everything and, and uh, he didn't have anything else to give. And so he put a basket there and he started at the time when it was time to give something to the Lord. He, he stepped into the basket <laughs> And Rex goes, brother, what are you doing? He goes, Rex, my friend, I've given everything I have. I only have one thing left to give. It's myself. And he stood in the basket. And I'm thinking, now that's worship. Because eventually it should be you, right? It's personally costly. Well, we need to end our session together. The angel reaches out and he speaks, angel of the Lord, which would be the pre-incarnate Christ, reaches out and calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham, now you do not have to tell me twice to put the knife down. I'm dropping it as soon as you utter the first syllable of my name. But Abraham said, here am I, here am I. And basically he says the following translation, put the knife down, step away from the car. Right? Well, not exactly. It's Steve's standard version due out this fall. It goes like this. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know, and here's the key, you ready? I know that you fear me, you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Do you see that? Do you see what's happening? He is saying the fear of God is coupled with the worship of God. The right attitude towards God is the right attitude that it takes to worship God. And so if you and I were together for another five weeks, we would do this series on the fear of God because that's the attitude you need, the right responsiveness to who God is, a 24-7 consciousness that puts Him in His right place, and, and you will order your life in such a way that everything, whether it means obedience or avoiding sin, will do the right thing when no one else is looking. That was my, that was my definition of fear of the Lord. And so what I'm saying to you is that this moment of testing produces this, this right disposition towards God, and God loves that. He just loves that to pieces, and, and then this provision is made. God blesses Abraham, last, for, last paragraph, 13 and 14. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. I want to ask you something. How many times does a ram in the wild get caught in the thicket by its horns? That's its chief weapon. You do not do that with your chief weapon. Put yourself at risk. That's instinct, right? Sounds like the ram was planted. Yeah, absolutely. So Abraham went and took the ram. Now listen for this word. And Abraham offered it for a burnt offering. And here's the word. Instead, instead, 
in place of His Son. And all of a sudden, this mural of heaven, this beautiful picture of the grand plan of God comes to its final moment where the last stroke of the brush of God is on the canvas. And the last stroke is one that reads instead. For the substitution, the transaction of one for the other is taking place. And the ram takes the place of Isaac, and Isaac lives, in essence, brought back to life, is what the writer of Hebrews says. And let me tell you, that's the cross. That is the cross, that is all the cross, where the Savior took the place, the categorically innocent took the place of the categorically guilty, and they exchanged roles. And who did he exchange roles with specifically? Barabbas. Barabbas was the third guy. He was supposed to be there. I'll end with this. So when you go to Jerusalem with me, and I would love to take you all, there's a place called the Lithostratus. I don't know if that's how they pronounce it. I just made that up because it makes me sound better. Lithostratus. That's the old Antonio Fortress. If you go down about 30 or 40 feet, you get to about 100, 120 A.D., which would be Hadrian's time. Hadrian was kind of a ruthless persecutor. Just below that level, you have the dungeons of Antonio's Fortress. It's interesting. It's all rock, and as you walk along low ceilings, you see these cell blocks that they now have blocked off with stone. You see the rock etched in such a way that it makes a trough for blood and water to flow. And then you'll see a game on the ground. It's called the king's game. And whoever lost that gambling game, their prisoner would be crucified next. It's all there. You can actually Google the king's game and find it. In that moment, in that setting, Barabbas would have been in prison. Up above, he would hear the crowds yelling, Crucify! Crucify! What shall I do with this? And he could get bits and pieces of the conversation. And as far as he knew, he was the next to be crucified. The crowds cheered. There was angry uh, chants back and forth. And finally, he hears the clang and the cadence of the Roman Iron Guard. As they march step by step, that gets louder and louder towards his cell block to his cell. And as he's there... He deepens his breath, he perspires intensely, and he watches as the, as the guard <coughs> excuse me, seemingly pauses at his cell block, but never stops. And the man of Calvary looks him in the eye as he walks right by. And in that moment, the categorically innocent is taking the place of the categorically guilty. And my friends, that's substitution. The ram instead of the man. The reason why we worship God is because He has taken all the expenses of heaven, all the resources of everything in heaven, and He has deposited it all in His Son so that you, the guilty, are treated like the categorically innocent. Now that's a mural of heaven. So perhaps as we close this session, 
your heart is stirred because the beauty of what God is describing is for you. I ask you one thing. Receive them. Just receive them. For it was all done so that you, the categorically guilty, could be called the categorically innocent. Father, this morning we just stopped this moment, very serious moment. I pray that the saints who know this truth and received it themselves, their hearts would be drawn so close to yours and their estimate of you would just soar. And they would not question as we often do our earthly fathers, really? But instead, we would proclaim how great thou art. And Father, I pray for those who have yet to cross the threshold of receiving Christ in all that he is and done and what you have provided through your son as a sacrifice for the human existence, the Lamb of God. I pray, Father, that that soul, well, would receive you. There's just no other answer to that question. What should I do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray for both people today asking you to give Branford Bible Chapel the richest of blessings possible. Give them so much joy, so much appreciation, so much adoration of their King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The love of God would permeate every life and soul and it would settle all of our disputes and all of our, all of our issues and we would be expecting the Savior at any moment, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Desire to pray together, but uh, Steve, if you don't mind taking a moment, second, we have a tradition here where we go.